Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Cody Stopper. And this is Craig Morton. On this podcast, we talk to writers, teachers, activists, and we seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words, but not to big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. And, and here's the first thought on my mind, meatloaf. Oh, not the singer. <laughs> sure. Okay, so that's your that's right. I, I you're sharing your favorite comfort food. You're thinking meatloaf. So, so do uh, maybe maybe before we even jump into that, we should say <laughs> um, we're using a new tool to keep our keep ourselves on track. Yes, we're using a session management tool called Sesh, and, and it comes with uh, pre whatever preloaded <laughs> icebreaker questions. Icebreaker just to questions. Get us started. And today's is what is the best comfort food? And I went with meatloaf. Ooh, meatloaf. That's your show. Okay. I can understand yeah, meatloaf. Yeah. Although I, uh, half, at least half of my childhood, I hated meatloaf. So I came around yeah. and I yeah. did like it, but I don't equate it with comfort food. I think because it was a battle for me to like, to even like. So I, see, uh, I, see. I think yeah, of, I go ahead. I was going to say, I don't have any negative connotations with meatloaf. Yeah. And it's one of those things that it's one of those few uh, kind of casserole type things. We throw a bunch of stuff together and cook it where it's good, cold and hot. That is true. That is the truth. It's great with mashed so, potatoes. Um, great in a sandwich with mayonnaise, yes. lettuce. Oh, so good. Tomatoes. Now, what's funny yeah. is I can remember while I don't know. I don't know what was in my brain. Why I was I convinced myself I didn't like it. But I can remember my mom <laughs> saying you like hamburgers, right? Um, well, yes, of course. <laughs> it's just a hamburger without without buns. And it, I understand that argument, but it really doesn't taste like a hamburger. There is some differences. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah it's more exotic. So, <laughs> yeah. so talk more about yours. Okay, talk mine is yeah, mine yeah. is this rich, meaty macaroni and tomatoey dish that my mom would make, almost like a goulash or a Hungarian, you know, like a goulash type thing. Very right. similar to that. So that's what I think of as warm, oh. flavorful. You know, the spice the spices were just right and smelled so good. And mm, I, could, I could watch a bubbling on the uh, on the stove so, and just so eating it made ago, me feel warm. A know? month ago, I was having such a strong uh, desire for uh, like a chili mac. Yeah. So get the chili going and throw in a bunch of macaroni. It's like that was just a weird craving. It kind of made me wonder what's wrong. Is there, should I, should I do a blood test or something? You're lacking something. Something's come yeah, out as calling I'm you. lacking my, my, my daily, you know, macaroni intake or something. Maybe. So. And what's funny is I am not, and maybe this is why uh, I like this. I am not a pasta forward guy. Like any pasta dishes. <laughs> I, I don't really like them. Spaghetti. Nope. Not a huge fan. Lasagna. Nope um anything heavy on pasta but for some reason this i think my mom struck the right balance of way more meaty sauciness and the pasta was just an accent not the wow you know the elbow macaroni was just a small part of it yeah that's a beautiful compliment to your mom 
Yeah, my mom's a great cook. Great cook. For for those basic, simple things, because it's amazing when those are like, yeah, that's where the comfort is. Exactly. Yep. And I could make it right now. You know, I could make it real quickly, you know, type of thing. That's when I think comfort food, I want it. It's rich and meaty or or warm or whatever, but also I can make it pretty quickly, you know? Yeah, that's the other part of it. You don't mm-hmm. want to be, to- there's no toil to it. Exactly. There shouldn't be. Now, now, generally, I would agree with that, except one time I made this lovely meatloaf with a bacon weave Ooh, wrapping. Yeah. And so okay. throw it into the oven as the bacon cooks, it all seeps in there mm. and it, tight, you know, it tightens as the bacon shrinks and holds yep. the shape. That That's was some a, good meatloaf. I that would be good. One of those. That yeah. sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, okay. Well, there we go. Right. Ice has that's, been broken. I, yeah. That's, I'm hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> you better hit finished on yours because I actually, I didn't hit. There we go. Moving okay. on. Moving on. Uh, we're, wow. We're, <laughs> anything well, we need I, to take care of before we dive in? Well, let's, let's just say a couple of things we want to talk about today. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about today. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So want to, want to touch base on a few things, but I only want to keep it to a few minutes here on, on leading into our interview with, with Drew Strait, but just touch base on a few kind of context kind of setting issues about, about um, Christian nationalism. Yes. And then when we get toward uh, after, after the interview, we want to touch base on some of the stuff going on with, um, what's going on in Asbury and say our own point yeah. about, about what's going on there and things we've read and things we've heard. Yep. Um, and it's kind of exciting to actually have the idea of a revival, a, a yeah. revival actually being a news item on major yeah. news uh, channels. I mean, every day I'm revived. I wake up, I open my eyes and nobody reports on it. So <laughs> Nobody's in my, nobody's like, hey, well, Craig is awake again this morning. So this is a different kind of revival. <laughs> so I like it. I like it. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So, well, diving in then. So, yeah, we're continuing on with the Christian nationalism. We have Drew Strait interview coming up, part one. This will be another two-parter. Uh, and and Drew the- has some amazing things to say, and I think I've got it set up in a two. Yeah, the two parters, and I think his definition of Christian nationalism begins the second nice. half of the interview. So you have to tune in to hear that, but it's a wonderful description. Oh, I, I think it's probably the best I've heard. The last few episodes or last, uh, yeah, two, two episodes, we looked at definitions. We looked at uh, maybe groups. You shared with us a few um, influential authors working in this realm that we need to check out. But I think today we're going to want to take a look at the what led up to the streams that have contributed to this building up, how we got here in the first place. Yeah, you know, and, and so this actually came up in the conversation with Drew, just mm-hmm. in in uh, talking back and forth, and uh, that you know there there was um, I want to say a little bit more about it at the end of this, but at the, at the during our conversation, uh, mentioned a book that was written back in the mid '90s called Bowling Alone yeah. by a political scientist sociologist by the name of uh, Robert Putnam. Mm-hmm. And Putnam was really at the center of my dissertation work on social cohesion theory. And uh, so that got me thinking about some of these other things about what's going on in the Christian nationalist sphere. And I kind of defined it as this perfect storm. Yep. Uh, now, the perfection of a storm isn't that it's really pretty and has a nice um, rainbow. <laughs> All right. Um, the, the idea of a perfect storm is that different fronts gathered 
to create a once in a lifetime or a very rare uh, kind of periodic um, collision of all these different forces. Right. And, uh, and, and, and the book perfect storm, which is about the sinking of a, of a fishing boat um, kind of describes what this, this definition of perfect storm is. And it creates this, this, um, Oh, what's the word kind of catalytic kind of mixing of these different things that becomes greater than the sum of its parts one of the things that that's disturbing is the department of justice uh the F, uh, through the fbi as well as independent watchdog groups and one of the ones that i've looked at frequently is the southern poverty uh, law and poverty justice center i see yeah um and there's other organizations out there that try to look at these multiple organizations that are militia-based, that are uh, independent populist-based. And, you know, one of the things that um, the FBI does with their threat assessments is they're looking both domestically and internationally. Right. Because the FBI is also um, in charge of international espionage that takes place in the United States. And some of those those foreign uh, terrorist uh, threats, but previous to the J six uh, insurrection, FBI was tracing multiple threat streams, is what they call them, mm-hmm. and finding you know all this what they call chatter. Basically, things are active. You know the different uh, social media sites and old fashioned internet bulletin boards. You yep. know that that they interact with one another through. And found out that there was this bubbling of these different groups that had different agendas, but they were converging kind of as this, uh, these different threat streams were converging into this perfect storm. So there were these different movements with similar goals. And if you, if you do some, I, I, I did not include the links. I think I have them somewhere, but to look at the Southern poverty law center and, and, some of the resources they have, they name the ones that a lot of people have heard about, like Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters. Boogaloo Boys. Um, Boogaloo Boys. And of course, the big ones of you know, KKK and yep. you know, um, the Zion, uh, Christian Zionist Nationalists. Or, like, I can't remember the whole name. But you know, there are these groups that, that are being monitored, and they are all over the place. Yep. And some of them, because of their extreme, uh, they, they are so extreme. A lot of people who would be tending toward Christian nationalism or what um, Whitehead and Perry call, you know, those folks who are the accommodators, you know, the, uh, you know, or what the, I mean, let's see. Yeah. And the public uh, religion and research Institute, the recent polling called the sympathizers. These mm-hmm. are the groups that are not completely bought in. They're not fully 100% behind it. They're on the edge. And some of these people don't want to go, you know, whole hog with like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers and, and you know, three percenters and whatnot. They don't want to go full militia. Right. But they're on the edge. Right there. And 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 they don't really know that by the things that they don't reject and the things that they don't push against, they're actually giving space for these things to continue. That's right. Yeah. Some some of those groups even if you if you just take them as a single group and you look at their stuff, it's not necessarily even like, say, for example, religious based or even racist based. It's more like anarchic based. Like, yeah, we want the downthrow of we want chaos. We don't want government. And we believe the way to get there is by piggybacking on some of these other groups that are driven by, you know, yeah. race, yeah, religion. 
<laughs> yeah. So I think it was I think it was uh, Jean-Paul Sartre who wrote a book. I think it was Sartre. It might have been Camus. I'm getting them confused. But these philosophers, <laughs> the existentialists, mm-hmm. uh, the book The Rebel. Mm. And in the book The Rebel, it talks about committing crimes. Yes. Uh, to to shake the system. Yep. And so a rebel must be willing to break all of those rules, not just some, but all of them. Yep. And there's a lot of people who just aren't there, but that's where some of the extremes in the groups would be going. Yep. But uh, so along with that, you've got, you've got these militia, militia groups who are (laughs) doing their militia thing. Mm -hmm. But one of the other terms that gets used in politics is populism. Now populism from time to time pops up and, you know, I can look back to the populism of the of the um, the late teens, 19, 19 teens, you know, so post World <laughs> War One. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the union movement was really growing in yep. especially among miners. Uh, yeah. But, gotcha. but many yes. of these many of these were just building up uh, and there was a populism there. And I look at that and I go, I like that. That would be yeah. a popular thing. Yeah. Yes. You know, five day work weeks, 40 hours a week, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, healthcare benefits, all that kind of stuff that the union movement really, really made normal for us. Right. And so populism sometimes has a pop uh, idea of it's, it's the popular thing, but that's not really what the term means because populism can also go to the other side of, you know, extreme reactionaries. That's right. Which is what we got into the 30s when we had this the America first movement, and I mean, um, bombing train the bombing of the train in Idaho. Remember that the, tr- you the had, trial of the century they called it. You had you had bombing of trains. You had you had espionage uh, on you know being being uh, committed by the uh, I think it was the Chicago uh, no Chicago California State Police, mm-hmm. which were looking to find ways to get. Uh, armaments out of national guard armories right. so they could fuel an insurrection so you that was what populism was doing in the 30s uh, uh marsha pally in a book called uh, white evangelicals and right-wing populism she's really trying to fine-tune her conversation and keep it out of the national uh, the, the christian nationalist issue for a while just to talk about populism and populism is defined as this is this response to duress and so when a, when a group feels that they're under pressure that they have uh things being taken from them yeah they're more willing to express uh anger fear hatred and that is part that is really what the idea of uh populism is it's a response to this um kind of duress yep and and so you've got populists who are kind of po- politically sensitive to pressures of employment. Well, I don't want immigrants coming and taking my job. Um, you know, it has concerns about um, who the specialists are who run the society. And so there's a fear of the elites. So right. whether they be educated, political, wealthy, the elites are to blame uh, because we're being left behind. We're being left out. Um yeah. And so there's, those are elements of populism. So that's a threat stream. That's another stream that pours into what's going on. Yeah. Then with the uh, with the Christian nationalists bit, you've got strange theological streams. You've got charismatics through the um, New Apostolic Reformation, which is a spooky group, uh, <laughs> and 
but they're open theists. Their 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 theology, in some ways, isn't too far from ours with this open right. and relational theology. Yeah, that the that the future of God is not fully uh, all set out in stone. That's right. They're 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 not Calvinists. That's right. Uh, but they are definitely militants, and they 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 are because it's of, open. That means we've got to take it by force. We got to make it happen. Well, gonna... yeah, this one we've got to make it happen. Yeah, yeah and they, they do all this cultural appropriation by grabbing Jewish and Hebrew traditions yeah. and trying to replicate it. Yep. Uh, they use language of prophets and apostles where there's no accountability for these folks, and anybody can compete as a prophet. It just <laughs> depends on how many people they. It's like it's like social influencers. Mm. Then there's the the reawakened tour, which is a bunch of Calvinists, right? And the reawakened bunch is Greg Locke and Michael Flynn. Yep. And and um, they fit into this kind of almost kind of a weird post millennial return of Jesus kind of thing. And the way to get to the return of Jesus is you know to enforce the thousand year reign of Jesus. And Bring so it. that's what we're going to take on. over. Grab all our guns and we're going to take them over. We're just going to wipe them out. Yep. And and then you know I had pre- previously mentioned the sympathizers and accommodators these different words that are very similar, but they represent people who aren't as extreme as the as Greg Locke or the New Apostolic Reformation or the militia folks, but they're on the edge. And you hear their language when they say things like, uh, "This is not a democracy; it's a republic." <laughs> yes, well, and, I hear that all the like, time. And that and it's like you got to like, why is that an issue? Let's talk about that and let's differentiate. <laughs> Right. But 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 that gets into those those kind of code words that are dog whistles and mating calls that that uh, Samuel Perry calls them. Yep. Uh, the word like, you know, tyranny, you know, we're, we we got to We got to, you know, be, you know, we've got a tyrannical government or we got to be prepared for, ty- you know, to fight tyranny. And you hear these words. And I think these are ones that accommodators and sympathizers use. Yep. And if and if preachers don't address those, because those are the folks who are still in church. Yes. Uh, those that's a place where I think we have almost the most work to do, which leads me back to the idea of Robert Putnam. Yep. So this idea of social cohesion, he is identifying in the mid nineties, the fact that civic organizations, clubs, things that uh, took place in communities where people of different uh, strains, professions, uh, you know, different, different religions would come together and do things together, softball leagues. And he focused on bowling leagues, yep. uh, but it comes, it shows up in volunteerism in civic projects, whether it be working for parks or being a big brother, big sister, any of those things shows this rapid decline in the mid nineties. The thing that I thought found fascinating is this is previous to social media. That's right. And so people were already moving apart in this pre-social media world. And then when social media begins to roll out 10 years later or so, yep. you know, early 2000s, you know, people are getting on and what they end up doing is making connections, but not with strangers for the most part. <laughs> right. They make connections with similar thinking people. That's right. And so it doesn't move against, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, resist the breakdown of cohesion that Pullman, uh, that, that, that Putnam's talking about. In fact, if anything, it magnifies it. Yeah. So now the, the the silos are taller and bigger with more people of a similar mindset. Mm. And it's where that, that's a place where these different groups come and then reinforce one another's behaviors. Um, and so we'll get these threat streams with different 
um, points of origin. Throw in a, a, a dash of social media. Yep. And all of a sudden, they can converge and create this uh, this this uh, destructive perfect storm. Yes. You know, and now it's... after the first front rolled through in January 6th, yep. it's not done. The weather no. pattern is still there. Yep. And rebuilding. Yeah, that's the fear. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm thinking I'm hearing this and the parallels even to other social phenomena. So right now, you know, we got this going on with the rise of white Christian nationalism in the age of social media, where these people find each other, link together uh in virtual space and then come together in real 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 space and yeah. these types of things happen but other movements as well popping up um the deconstructionist movement you know these you and i right like even yeah. early on in the early 2000s i can remember the the phrase i heard over and over and over oh i thought it was just me you know yeah that's right things. that's right and then yeah. finding each other online and then creating this so Exactly. It's amazing the the mirror images of things, you know, these social movements that seem, and they are, they're different from each other, maybe even think polar opposite things of each other. And yet the reason they even exist is because of the similar phenomenons and streams and whatnot. So it, it, That's one of those places where people like you and I, you and me, mm-hmm. us, where we got to <laughs> put it that way. So it's it's a place where, where folks like us need to dig into our missional theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, amen. And and the thing is, we've got these. Yeah, I think the idea of these are almost mirror societies yep. or opposite but equal kind of forces. Yep. How do how do you get them to cross? Mm. You know, how do you how do you speak into that divide and how do you build those bridges? Yep. yep. Um, I have friends right now who are, uh, you know, they've maybe it, I, I it's not too late, but I mean, I'm just saying they recognize this phenomenon, especially among white. Well, we call them the term that they call themselves are incels, but white, you know, lone male cisgender, yeah. you know, like who. Uh, and I have friends who are like, you know, I'm looking back. And if I had not found the right community for me, that could have been me. You know, I could have been one of these people because I was right for I needed a group. I needed um, somebody who taught me about my own dignity and worth all and sp- People are giving you this message in a poisonous way, <laughs> you know, yeah. with poison yeah. laced in. So there's a lot of work to do for some people. A lot of uh, a lot of mentoring that can take place. Well, and it's I, I, one of the things that um, um, our guest uh, Drew Strait will talk about is the importance of preaching to the choir. Yeah, and that. Even if you think most people have heard you say this before from the pulpit mm-hmm. or in your, you know, your, your ministry context or whatever it might be, um, it's worth reiterating. It is. And the thing is, even as you bring up the subject, you might end up hearing stories just like the one you mentioned. Yep. I could have gone that path Yep. Uh, had it not been for somebody offering another alternative. Yeah. So the person I'm thinking in particular was if I literally... Um, and it was a, a woman, another woman who was like, you know, listen, you're being fed because he was, he was being fed this lie. Women don't want masculine men and they want to, you know, neuter them and yada, yada, yada. And so we've got to stand up and be strong and fight and yep. reclaim our 
roles and identities, yada, yada, yada. And just finding, no, unplugged from that. That is such a lie. There, There's a difference between masculinity and toxic masculinity. And we'll start there and work through there. And it was just a person mentoring him to help him yeah. see what the differences were, <laughs> you know, that That's there awesome. is. Wow. Yep. Yep. Anyway. So, All right. So, hey, let's uh, take a little break here and jump into our conversation with Drew Strait. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's fascinating is he's going to go ahead and tell us a little bit about where he came from and his kind of evangelical past. And uh, it's a great it's a great story. It's interesting to see where he ended up and how he got there. So hello and welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Blue Collar podcast. Uh, one of the things we've been working on is a series looking at the issue or the topic of Christian nationalism. And along with that is not really like, gee, what is this? But ways to actively prepare ourselves to resist uh, that movement as it, as it rises. Um, and one of the things we want to do on this podcast is become familiar with the topic. What is this thing we call it where that is being called Christian nationalism, but from a, a, a pastoral perspective, how do we uh, participate in the resistance? Um, Cause there's plenty of prophetic voices uh, that, that are making statements and um, there may be, you know, feelings that, that turn into anger and, the resistance becomes uh, fighting when it's not necessary. But what is a pastoral way that includes developing relationships, how to speak, uh, and maybe even to help uh, kind of shine a light on what Jesus is really about and, and help people find that? And so today we're having a conversation with, with Drew Strait. Drew is in an enviable position of helping to shape uh, present and future Christian leaders who can be uh, cast out into that wild world of um, ministry in local parishes and congregations. And um, we're kind of curious about how does Drew's interest in Christian nationalism, uh, how does it interact with teaching? And and behind that, you know, who is Drew? Well, first, we'll get into that. And uh, Drew is a professor of New Testament at, um, I was going to say, Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminaries, but it's not called Associated anymore. It's Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminaries in uh, Elkhart, Indiana. So, Drew, thank you for spending some time with us. And uh, jumping into that, is there any other aspect of your introduction that you would want people to know? And and otherwise, we'll probably pick some things up as we go into the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me, Craig. I'm, I think some more things will come up as you ask me some questions about uh, how I became a Mennonite. I'll try and share more about my background. Sure. So beginning with that, yeah, what is your faith background? How do you, uh, how did you get from being wherever you were to wherever you are now? I mean, that could be a huge story, I'm sure. Yeah. But yeah, what what was your faith background? What's your pilgrimage been? What are some decisive turns in, in that path? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very much a child of the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Spokane, Washington, and I was actually baptized Catholic as an infant, but raised United Methodist on the north side of Spokane. And that Methodist church had a big impact on me in terms of teaching me about prayer and an awareness of God. But it wasn't until seventh grade when I went to a Young Life camp, which is an, an, an evangelical youth organization, parachurch organization, 
And at that camp, um, the life and teachings of Jesus became deeply personal to me. And I would say from that time through college, I became broadly lowercase e evangelical. A personal relationship with Jesus was my entire understanding of what Christianity was. It was important to me. It had a huge impact to me. Um, but this bigger vision of what the life and teachings of Jesus and what the church even means for Christian discipleship didn't make a whole lot of sense. So fast forward to college, I was a, a, a theology major at Whitworth College, which is a Presbyterian USA school. And I, at, at that stage of my life, I became broadly reformed with my Young Life background. I was a Young Life leader on student staff with Young Life there, uh, leading youth ministry. And um, after 9-11, there was talk of retaliation, obviously, all across the United States. How do we retaliate against these terrorists who attacked um, our soil here in the United States. And as I watched Christians around me, including family members and leaders in my life and mentors kind of get caught up in this fear, this lust for retaliation, I started to question some of the things that I had been taught. And I started to see some incompatibilities between the life of Jesus and the ways that Christians around me were acting. So then fast forward to the preemptive invasion of Iraq in 2003, I was against the war at that time based on just war theory. I was a good kind of reformed Presbyterian evangelical, and I was passionately against the war. And I will never forget um, on the night of, of, of our invasion of Iraq, I was actually at my young life leader's house. And we stayed up till probably three o'clock in the morning watching uh, uh, the media inside of tanks and, and driving into Iraq as bombs were going off. And all of a sudden, my, my youth leader, who had mentored me since seventh grade, and some of my closest Christian friends were cheering and yelping with glee. And I sat there just absolutely dumbfounded. How could these Christians, who I've been so close with for so many years, be so excited about literally mutilating strangers on the other side of the world that they know virtually nothing about? So this was a, a paradigm shifting moment for me that set me on a new trajectory. And I got married shortly thereafter. And my wife and I worked in the Haitian Bates in the Dominican Republic for a couple of years. And while we were there, we were reading Ron Sider's Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And in that book, he talks about a Mennonite congregation called Rich Christians in, sorry, <laughs> that's the title of the book, uh, called Reba Place Fellowship. And it just so happened that my wife had just gotten into a graduate program in Evanston at Northwestern University where Reba is. And so we kind of stumbled into this a Mennonite congregation, actually a church plan of Reba called Living Water Community Church. Okay. And we ended up spending seven years there. And, and that is kind of the, the, the journey, this meandering journey I was on that, that brought me to Anabaptism. Well, that's interesting that that, that path to Reba, one of the founders years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, was from um, one of the families of the congregation where I first served in Kansas. Really? Who was uh, that? David Jansen. Oh, yeah. I've met, I've met him. Yeah. And uh, he did some of the early writing and documenting of the practice of becoming, you know, creating the common purse and developing their their community there. And my my wife and I and our kids would go up. We went up, I think, twice and visited up there because my wife also nice. has relatives in Evanston. So it's like, oh, let's go visit relatives and go to church at Reba. And it was a great experience. That's awesome. Now they had a huge impact on me. Yeah. To this day, they've had a huge impact on me. It to me, it's one of the most impactful congregations I've visited. And what I remember is is seeing the people. 
mm. was such a beautiful blend of um, dialect and ethnicity. And, and yes. it was just, and it was all meandered through, not as if people were sectioned off into different parts. And it was just, it was, it was a, it was a beautiful experience. Yeah, I, uh, I I know as right now, I occasionally visit because I'm not far from Chicago, and they're passing the peace of Christ right now in nine languages in the middle wow. of the service on Sunday mornings. It's wow, incredible. That's it's beautiful. a truly multicultural church. Yeah. Now, one of the things you mentioned is you're talking about watching that invasion invasion of Iraq, and something just triggered you, and just you know, like how how are we cheering this? Mm-hmm. What do you think gave you that that kind of sensitivity to pick that up when others around you weren't? I mean, that kind of must have been like an alienating yeah. or isolating kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the time, I had been doing a fair amount of thinking about xenophobia. Actually, I had done a little bit of travel. I'd been a little bit fortunate and. My dad had some health issues when I was in junior high and my parents decided we don't know how long he's going to have to live. So we're going to do a little bit of traveling. We're going to take you guys to Europe and we're going to drive the Alaska highway wow. um, instead of like get new carpet for our house and whatnot. And so I was at a little bit of a different place than some of my friends in terms of thinking about other ethnicities and peoples. And um, it really bothered me at the time that Christians that I was so close with could could understand the life and teachings of Jesus with and neighborly love as being compatible with this deep fear of the Muslim world right. or of, of other ethnicities and, and, and peoples of other nations that they literally know nothing about. Right. Um, that was really the heart of, of kind of where I was at the time. But beyond that, just the idea of direct violence, just the brutality of war. How, how can an entire nation become so quickly captivated by this idea of violent retaliation Right. It resulted in over 100,000 innocent civilians being killed, murdered, men, women, and children, including entire Chaldean Christian communities. Yeah. How do we get to that place? And at the time, I wasn't very sophisticated in terms of, of biblical interpretation, in terms of understanding the Gospels, but it sent me on, on a, a return to, to reading the Gospels in a much deeper way. And that's really what brought me to a place of realizing that when Jesus talked about peacemaking and nonviolence, I think he meant it. And I think he had a direct reference in the first century world as he was confronting the spiral of violence in, in Roman colonial occupied Israel. And and around him, he saw also the, the freedom fighters who were wanting to yes. organize and to fight back and was not empowering them, uh, to yes. say the least, was diverting that attention, trying to divert their that, that motivation into something much more life-giving absolutely yeah, yeah disrupting these patterns of violence um and, and and these stories and these narratives and these biographies of jesus i think have significant implications for how we think about the church disrupting these patterns of violence that are pervasive in our world even today you know that i i think there's a piece of that that might want to pick up later in our conversation mm-hmm. because the story that the, the stories that jesus tells and then the story of the early church who heard those stories or were close to them moves in a similar direction of disrupting violence, mm. not participating in violence. Yet we have this uh, Old Testament narrative, at least as some will interpret it from the Hebrew Bible, that elevates violence and justifies violence because so much in the Christian nationalism rhetoric references 
yeah. these Old Testament campaigns and, you know, the sense of dominion or dominionism, you know, it goes back to like conquering Cana, you know, sure. it's like, well, yeah, no, uh, and put the black. So that might be something to pick up maybe in a, in a little bit. You know, one of the ways that, um, well, where I first became aware of you and your work was, I think there was a webinar Mm-hmm. Uh, from the seminary on the topic of Christian nationalism. And, mm-hmm. and I'd been into it for a while. And it's like, oh, good. Mennonites are talking about this. Let's jump in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I became familiar of your your work in this. But how did you get into that topic? I mean, it's not something you go, oh, I'm looking for a fight to, you know, I want to go pick a fight. I'm going to find a controversial topic. Oh, this one looks good. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I don't, mean to bring everything back to the Iraq war, but it really was such a paradigm shifting moment for me. Um, When I came back from the Dominican Republic, I started graduate school and seminary and then went on to do a PhD in New Testament. And much of my my research really was focused on political idolatry and how ancient Jewish communities and, and, um, and early Christian communities negotiated political idolatry. And this ended up becoming the topic of my dissertation project uh, which is now published with Fortress Press called Hidden Criticism of the Angry Tyrant and Early, Early Judaism and the Acts of the Apostles. And I was really interested in how these marginalized religious communities could criticize the empire without saying anything critical, seeming to say anything critical at all. So how did they do this covertly? How did they do this carefully so as to not evoke a repression or violent retaliation? Right. And um, so my dissertation being on political idolatry, I really wanted to continue to think about downloading this into congregations. How do we think about the church negotiating this today? And of course, with the election of Donald Trump, this became even more pressing um, as as I was seeing congregations either becoming co-opted by white Christian nationalism or congregations feeling like they're powerless in knowing how to resist Christian nationalism. Um, So in my, my job at AMBS, I have, I have felt like this is a topic I need to talk about out of a moral duty. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot yeah. of other projects I have burning in me that I, I'm looking forward to getting back to, but I'm taking an intentional, basically a full-time break for a couple of years right now to work on this um, because the world that Donald Trump and white Christian nationalists want to cultivate here in the United States is not one that I want my children to inherit. Right. And it is not one that I think is compatible with the life and teachings of Jesus. The the um, the the political ideology piece um, mm-hmm. is is so prevalent in its um, presence across uh, Christian churches. Mm-hmm. I remember um, I never thought about the fact that the church I went to every Sunday as a kid, all you know, had American flag up front. Just never, yeah. never, never thought that that was even an issue to discuss. It was just, oh, it's it's the way it is. Um, and I really didn't think about it seriously until I was at an American Baptist church when I was going through seminary uh, back mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. And I um, and I didn't really even notice that there wasn't an American flag there. But in their uh, dining hall or their, their fellowship hall from the rafters, there were probably 120 national flags. Mm-hmm. And their point was that the kingdom of God is for all people. And if we can't uh, we we can't hang one because nice. everybody is you know welcomed into the into the 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 kingdom of God, and that's when I first started thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
but that that fact that that flag is present so many places it almost seems like the seed is already there for somebody to come along and nurture that seed and make that ideology grow um right now i'm finishing off uh brad onishi's book Mm -hmm. preparing for war yeah and it just blew me away he he was in a quaker church (laughs) right here (laughs) beautiful book and I, did, I haven't gotten to the end of it, but he says he talks about Idaho quite a bit in there at the end. Hmm. Uh, but um, it just blew me away. It's like you were a part of a Quaker church. And I, you know, I went to look up the Quaker church that he was referring to. And it's part of, part of the Southwest yearly meeting. And I went to their faith and practice document. And it has nothing about being a peace church. Yeah. And it it seems like the political ideology in that, that, that that kernel form, you know, gave full fruit to leave that tradition mm-hmm. and become simply maybe, you know, big E evangelical church. Yes. And I fear that's happening a lot of places. And I don't know, from your perspective, being there in Elkhart, I'm assuming it happens with the, even within our denominational churches. Yeah, it does. And it's, it, it surprises me. Um, Mennonites and Anabaptists don't have some kind of special immunity from these principalities and powers, from these political forces. And actually, I'll never forget, I think it was in around 2008, I went to my first Mennonite National Convention in Columbus, Ohio, as a delegate for Living Water in Chicago. And when I got there, I thought, oh, wow, you know, I've never been around all of these Christians that talk about peace, peacemaking, and justice so openly. I'm like, these are my people. It was so exciting. And then when I sat down at a table of strangers, uh, most, most of whom are rural pastors, I started talking openly about this. And like, well, hold up, you know, a lot of our congregants in these more rural congregations have been totally co-opted by right-wing Christian radio. And they were talking about it in the context of like, we need people like you, people who have left evangelicalism, who still kind of have that, that fervor and who can come help us figure out how to, to pastor and, and nurture these congregants who are, are kind of being brainwashed by Rush Limbaugh and, and other figures on, on the radio. So these dynamics are absolutely at play yeah. in, in Quaker and, and, and Mennonite congregations. And it's, it's a huge challenge. And I, I get phone calls and emails from pastors just saying how hard it is. They feel alone. They're looking for allies. They're yep. under significant pressure from family members and congregants and, and people who write checks for their own uh, salary. Um, and so if you co- come out too strong on it, there can be consequences, but if right. you don't do anything, there are also consequences. So it's a really right. difficult place to be. That's, you know, that, I think that, you know, speaks to part of that dynamic is that, yeah, there may be pastors, pastoral leaders, and others who are in that awareness, but between, between that rock and a hard place is a very difficult, yeah. very difficult to navigate and to be, it's, it's, it is hard to step out. And, and each step is a little bit um, maybe processed quite carefully and quite yeah. has to be quite um, well considered and then brace yourself for impact kind of. Absolutely. And, and this is where I think the work you're doing and others is so important just to create spaces for pastors to share with one another, to support one another, to share wisdom about some of these so what questions, because so much of the scholarship that's being done right now on white Christian nationalism is really focused on defining it, putting it in historical perspective. Right. And this is incredibly important work. In some ways, it's step one to be able to define what we're up against. But it yeah. does, from my perspective, I do feel like we're behind the ball and lacking in 
effective strategies of protest? How can we nonviolently challenge white Christian nationalism? What can pastors, what can congregants do? Not one of us can solve this challenge on our own. <laughs> it's, right. it's, it's a massive challenge ahead of us, but how, how can we join together to build the kind of people power and have some strategic peace building um, with one another? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think you're you're onto something when it comes to working at finding that that working definition of it. I mean, so Brad Onishi, Andrew Whitehead, Sam Perry, um, oh, who else am I skipping? But uh, m- mentioned earlier before we recorded, Pamela Cooper White. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's so many people who are writing so much good stuff. Gorski, yep. um, yep. just tremendous stuff, but it's from a a political or a sociological lens yeah that's that's not pulling it into you know what is what's going on in the local congregation how do pastors navigate this mm-hmm. and i think the other piece of it is also it's it, and i wouldn't expect it from them i'm not asking it from mm-hmm. them i don't think there's anything really lacking in their work because there's so right. much to be done but yeah. it's almost a, a theological not a not an esoteric theological but but a simple theological critique mm-hmm. um yeah. uh backtracking again maybe a little bit so we're talking about white christian nationalism and i think sometimes i use the phrase christian nationalism because i think it's synonymous with being white mm-hmm. uh, or whiteness you know that uh, even if a person of color were part of those ideals they're still falling into the whiteness uh, myth or whatever yeah. that is yeah. um but for you how would you define what's your working definition of christian nationalism yeah, and I, I'm with you. I've been deeply influenced by Whitehead and Perry's work in Taking America Back for God and Gorski and, and Perry's subsequent book. And I'm persuaded in that book that whiteness is the kind of the gravitational epicenter of, of white Christian nationalism and white replacement theory and, and some of these other ideological um, narratives that are really influencing some of the fear that is underlying the Christian nationalist worldview. I'm trying to come at it, you know, of course, from a theological and biblical standpoint. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a journalist. I'm a New Testament scholar with deep pastoral sensibilities and concerns for the life of the church. Another distinction I would make is that I'm, I'm not primarily coming at this to save democracy. I think democracy is really important for mitigating harm. Even as a Mennonite, I do vote and participate in the political process to um, help protect the marginalized and the vulnerable in our society. But my prior, primary angle on this is to um, is to to re-inscribe uh, the church with the life and teachings of Jesus, and to recognize and acknowledge that white Christian nationalism is, in my mind, in the North American context, the greatest threat to the church's public witness. And so, I'm deeply concerned about the church's witness to the life and teachings of Jesus. I'm deeply concerned about the ways people are reading the Bible and misreading the Bible and using the Bible to leverage harm on on the vulnerable. And so my my short definition of white Christian nationalism would be a movement wherein theological imagination is co-opted by state power. And I kind of have three sub points on that. Mm -hmm. Um, I would argue that Christian nationalism is a worldview where one's ethno-racial identity becomes a more powerful controlling narrative than one's baptismal identity in Christ. And so we kind of flip this script instead of our baptismal identity being our controlling narrative for making sense of the world around us, our ethno-racial identity kind of 
subsumes that under uh, as in kind of a subordinate role. I would also say that Christian nationalism was a worldview that sees the militarized kingdoms of this world rather than the unarmed multicultural church as the primary context for bearing witness to the Jesus and the kingdom of God. And third, I would say um, that Christian nationalism is a perversion of Jesus's way of peace um, that ends up endorsing state violence, police brutality, and personal armament as expressions of faithful discipleship. Uh, so at the core of this, I would say that it's a worldview wherein uh, one's theological imagination has been co-opted by a kind of an ethnocentric, xenophobic form of state power. You know, uh, highlighting the baptismal identity, the baptismal vow, and I, I it, when when I do a baptism, one of my favorite phrases is to rise and walk in the newness mm -hmm. of life. You know, as, as this follower of Jesus, and it to me it seems mm -hmm. very clear in that baptismal blessing how that person should move forward. You know, yes, and yep. and however, it makes me feel sometimes like there's a clock ticking that at some point that baptismal vow will rise someone up to think that they're following the way of Jesus, but it's Deus Volt, you know, mm -hmm. and they'll carry the white shield with the red cross and, mm -hmm. you know, quote the Psalm, train my fingers for war and think that's following Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Does it take a generation and all of a sudden then the real Jesus has disappeared for a while? And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, um, that mentioning that baptismal identity, I think, is crucial. Yeah, and how do we how do we maintain that baptismal identity yeah. in a world um, that is not very hospitable to the ethics of the, of the New Testament, particularly around yeah. peace and justice? Um, so, so you are now in a place where that's not quite an uncommon thing. You could go out and you could say things. I think Jesus wouldn't kill people. Yeah, <laughs> and you're you're in a place where I mean, where you where you work at least, perhaps where you live, where that's not a terribly controversial statement. However, yeah. you grew up someplace mm -hmm. where if you said that, people would think you're from another planet. Absolutely, yeah, and. You know, I still have a lot of friends and family members who do think I'm from another planet or maybe don't quite fully understand or, or find me incredibly confusing in terms of where my journey has taken me. Um, but yeah, before I came to, to AMBS, Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary, I taught for five years at St. Mary's Ecumenical Institute in Baltimore. And I routinely had students from across the theological and political spectrum. And it was uh, an enormous challenge, but also incredibly fun to try and figure out how do I push the envelope a little bit without right. evoking just an eruption of anger in, in the classroom? You know, like how do right. I get under people's skin just enough to get them thinking differently about some of these issues by staying close to the life and teachings of Jesus? And I found that um, by staying close to the Bible, like it was shocking to me that people would hear me out in my critiques of militarism or my critiques of white supremacy. But as soon as I shifted from what the text meant in the ancient world to what it means, all of a sudden I was labeled a Democrat or a socialist, which right. is a reminder of the ways their own hermeneutical lenses have been co-opted by state power. They're reading even scripture through their own social location um, in, in empire, I would say actually, in, yeah. in, 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 as an American rather than as, as, a, as a baptismal baptized Christian. Um, obviously we, we need to parse all of those terms out some, right. but um, it's a huge challenge, but it's also really fun. So it has been, Amazing to be at an institution where I'm institutionally encouraged and empowered 
to talk about some of these topics. The difference is that my students tend to be a little bit more homogenous. <laughs> so right. sometimes I miss having Christian nationalists in my classroom from the Catholic tradition or the Orthodox tradition or other Protestant denominations. Um, and so I'm, I hope to find other ways and, and other platforms for speaking well, to those people. You just need to move <laughs> out here to the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. You'll, you'll have plenty to talk to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. Gonna stand my ground, won't be turned around. And I'll keep this world from dragging me down. Gonna stand my ground. And I won't back down Hey, baby There ain't no easy way out Hey, I will stand my ground And I won't back down What an awesome voice. <laughs> yeah, man. Johnny Cash. What? So rich. I mean, to stuff. hear somebody like him with, you know, kind of the last breath uh, in this life, you know, singing those songs. It's, I love um, mm. the kind, uh, kind hearted, but defiant tone. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. The man in black. So, that was awesome. So good. Excellent. Okay. Good stuff. I'm um, looking forward to the second half of that interview too. You're getting a little digging deeper, even into his definition. It's a good background there. Wonderful. So, what can we talk about now, post interview? What? What? Uh... Hey, so, you know, I I know we wanted to talk about Asbury revival. Yeah, I, I of gave us gave a little heads up for that. Yeah, but I don't want to ignore a couple of things going on in sports. Yes. Okay. I mean, so this week had a big deal. I mean, it was a big, big deal. And, you know, it's, I remember when um, one time Valens, Valentine's Day was on a Sunday. Yeah. You know, kind of beginning the week. Mm -hmm. And somebody said something like, are you excited about this, this Sunday? And I responded by saying, yes, pitchers and catchers report. <laughs> Which yes, was yes, the yes. wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> but, but have you read about, uh, I think his name is Andrew Painter. Oh, yeah. He's 19 a fun, year old, yeah. Uh, wild 19 thing. Year old going to Philly, yep. And you know, so I think I, if I was, if I'm not correct, he's the first teenager potentially to be in the pitching rotation of a team that was in the World Series, yeah. Isn't that cool? I mean, that's a lot of pressure. That's, that's huge. I mean, I mean, it's not like he went to like, oh, I don't know, the Royals or. <laughs> Pittsburgh Pirates <laughs> or Detroit, but <laughs> mm. yeah, that's, that's exciting. Cool. Nineteen that's... years old, yeah, wee, that's crazy. And, and and the other cool thing that that I wanted to, to highlight, yeah, I got to see a world record broken. On, <gasps> you did on on uh, Saturday morning. Oh my goodness! At a track meet, so it's at at, at a track and field meet, and <laughs> so. Did you ever try shot put? 
Oh yeah, yeah, messing around. I didn't actually do track and field, but yeah, I would. But hop, you've, you've, would... you've felt one of those things. It's a, it's a, it's an iron ball that weighs twelve pounds in high school, sixteen pounds in college and professional. Yeah, and so, so I was at a track meet uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's the largest high school track meet in, I think, North America. Uh, we had teams from Canada, Australia, Oof. U.S. There was a fourth country represented too, and I'm trying to remember. Uh, maybe it was just three, but it's a huge track meet. And when the when the finalists for the uh, boys shot put came up, yeah, one of the other competitors who joined the field was a guy named Ryan Krauser, who's the world record holder for the shot put. He Oof. holds the world. Uh, He's NCAA champion several times over, world champion several times over, gold medalist. Um, and he came to the meet and he's throwing. <laughs> and so he's in the rotation there. They each, each, each one gets six throws. And he's through that thing in the past, like uh, indoor and outdoor, his record's somewhere around 73 feet, a 16 pound ball. Right? That is insane. And, and, uh, you know, I'm I'm sitting in the upper rafters of the Holt Arena at at, at uh, uh, ISU, the Idaho yeah. State. I could tell. And and I'm up there in the top because it's warm up there. Otherwise, the plate the building's really cold. <laughs> and so he's up for his first throw, and I figure, okay, yeah, he'll probably warm up the second throw. Maybe on the third throw, it'll be something dramatic. On his first throw, he throws that that steel ball. It looked like it was up as high as my eyes. Uh, there in the, the top row of seats and they had a red line out at the end of the sector where his where the where the world record mark was and you see this thing coming down and you know that thing is is beyond the mark and and he cleared his outdoor world record mark by several inches and he cleared his indoor world record mark as well Oh and my so goodness. he took he took the combined world record and it was so much fun because they're uh, sitting in front of me were people who were throwers and they were like, I can't believe what I just saw and just excited. <laughs> and I'm getting, you know, I got some uh, Instagram posts and text messages and uh, stuff from friends who are track track and field all around the country. And they're going, wow, this happened today. And I said, I witnessed it. And they went, really? I wish I was there. And then behind me were some people who had never seen that, that event before. And they go, what's the big deal? He just threw like a big ball. I don't get it. <laughs> but anyway, that was cool. You really That's don't insane. very often get to see a world record performance. And that was really cool to see. That is amazing. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. They up, uh, they got it up here on YouTube. Yeah, uh, so it's a it's a it's a cool thing. And if you look woo. at if the camera angles right, if you look way, 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 way up in the back. You see <laughs> There's him, you. Um, I'll yeah. look for that flowing white beard. That's In, where it is. Unmistakable. Anyway, oh, so crazy. that that's that's all my track and field news for the week. Oh, but that was that's, cool. that's good. That is very cool. Uh, before we do revival, um, talk. Yeah. Yesterday, I finally watched the Banshees of Inisherin. Ah, very good. So good. And what it's so movie. weird. It's so <laughs> it's weird. Absurdist, dark comedy, tragedy, yeah. tragic comedy. It's so good. It, and and I don't want to do, I don't know if you want to do any spoilers, but not not a lot. But I mean, the idea is essentially two friends; their friendship breaks down. Um, well, not it doesn't break down. Doesn't it break down. Just literally, just literally, just one day in, in the morning, yeah. next morning. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. End over. I don't like you anymore. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 I don't remember their names anymore. But 
the, the and uh, Pedrak. Pedrak. Yeah. And he's just Pedrick, is that it? Yeah, okay. Pedrick. Mm-hmm. And he's and he's just shook. Like, wait, how you can't be serious? Yeah, even like, no, it's, you do, you do like me. <laughs> yeah. And, no, no, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> just the, I did, but, I, but not anymore. <laughs> yeah. Oh my word! It's so uh, just the absurdity of it, but also uh, you know the backdrop, the filming, incredibly beautiful well, work. But the thing that caught my attention early on without really it's not even an issue it's not a storyline but it's a backdrop (laughs) is they are on an island Mm -hmm. and on the mainland is the irish civil war in the early 20s yep was it 21 1921 22 something right yep it's uh takes place 23 in fact april 1st he thinks it's an april fool's joke at first (laughs) that is right (laughs) april 1st 2023 and so there's this this a civil war taking place Mm-hmm. And and here on the island is their civil war. That's right. Two brothers and two friends. And the sister, that's what yep. got me. Where yep. does the sister go? She, <laughs> she goes to the she mainland. Goes to the mainland. Yep. She goes to the civil war. She flees the madness of the island to go to the mainland and work where the civil war is taking place. Yeah. And oh. That's... Anyway, I had a lot of theological thoughts on that. Me and, too. You know, um, and so... I was. One of the things that jumped out to me is how the two characters. So one reason he gives is he just doesn't like listening to him anymore. He talks on and on about things that just don't matter, aren't important. And he recognizes I'm about, you know, maybe I've got 12 years left of life. So I've got work to do that I need to get done. And uh, I can't waste it in dullard conversations, dull conversations. <laughs> <laughs> so he's tackling his music. He wants to write music and uh, leave it behind something that, you know, but, he could but, be known but for. Then, but then the music is is almost a victim. Yes. To of, the extremities. Of, yeah. It's, Literally. The two, the two characters. <laughs> the two characters. Honestly, they're so alike because they both, honestly, they both sacrifice what they value in the name of the thing they value. (laughs) You know what I mean? So the young fella, he has this pivotal moment where he comes to him and says, why you're calling me dull, but I'm just nice. I like being, there's nothing wrong with being nice and being just a nice regular bloke, but he ends up being an absolute a-hole. In the in the sake of his, you know, what he believes in, being nice, being just a good, you know, neighborly, chatterly right, right. person. Flip side, older fella ends up sacrificing what he loves in the name of what he loves. You know, this leaving behind the music, and <laughs> it's insane. So, so I, 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 I'm curious. Say some more about how um, the young man, uh, mm-hmm. Patrick. Yep. How was he? How was he behaving poorly? He to begin with, he's not, but he ends up being. He does one. In fact, the fella, the one fella who really looks up to him and respects to him, his name's Dominic. He's a young guy. Oh, there we go. There we go. Yeah, that's doesn't, where. That's where he. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't have a lot going on himself, but he ends up telling him, "I thought you were different than everyone else. You were that's actually, right. yeah, you were actually nice. You're not anymore. I don't even want to be around yeah. you." <laughs> and and I think that was that was a, but I think that came back to him. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think Patrick's not good at, he, he's not good at being mean. Yeah, that's right. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, oh man, it's it's a good that's a good yeah. good movie. It it's it's rare, I think, to have a movie so good that is so profound. It's got it, so much to say. It does. I can unpack and, some uh, things. His conversation, the older fellow's conversations with the priest in the confessional, very short, but so much packed into just these little conversations about what's motivating him and what's driving him. So yeah. 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 It was it was Definitely a good movie. I'm glad you finally watched it. So have you have you gotten through uh, Ted Lasso yet? No, not yet. Again, <laughs> still waiting for Lisa. So we'll, I may right. just have to plow through it myself and just do it. Yeah, no, the um, all of those movies by what is their names? Is the Monahans, right? That did in well, who it Banshees? is? Uh, Monahans or Moynihan, something like that, or Mur- what is it? McMurray's? I can't remember. But uh, I think they're responsible. As I think they're brothers, and in some tandem, they're responsible for in Bruges, which is a good one. Um, another one called. Okay, so this looks like it's Martin McDonough. Yeah, McDonough. Director. There we go. Not McDonough. There Ed we Ryder, go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Bancher, this one in Bruges, which also has the same actors. But another one with only. Um, oh, he did um, three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Oh Remember really? That one? Yep. Oh so yeah. It's all he's just total extremes people yeah. go to. You know, basically these extremes, absurdist extremes that people. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> so good. Right. So good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That in fact, now that I know, I didn't have made that connection. It kind of makes sense with the three billboards. That's yeah, right. It's exactly. Like there's, a, there's a theme say, there. There is definitely a theme. Some themes that cool. this guy likes to play with. Yep. Well, so speaking of extremes. Yes. The people like to go to. Okay. What do you think about revivals? Okay, the revivals. United Methodist Church. Hey, we got one going on right now at Asbury well, College, I mean, not seminary. So, okay, so it's the college, but not the seminary. Yeah, that's right. That's good to know. All right. <laughs> that helps sem- seminaries, sem- seminaries are what? Not revivable? <laughs> yeah, no, it's too much. It's too head, too heady. Yeah, no revivals. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. No, so yeah, so revival taking place at Asbury College. Um, I'm and you know I have mixed the, it, feelings and it's about been writ- it's writ- it's been written about all over the place. Though. A lot, a lot, a lot of yeah. reactions, a lot of inputs. Me personally, I have mi- I I have mixed feelings. I'm always the wait and see type. So what comes out of it? What's the fruit? That's my. That's how I I want to hold off and wait and see. I have my thoughts and about you know, these particular brand because Asbury is known as a, they're known as an currently within the UMC, they're known as a kind of anti LGBTQ location. Um, But that's way more the seminary than it is the college who knows where, you know, I assume they're similar, but you know, out of this revival could come, you know, any amounts of fruit that, uh, a change of hearts, change of directions, a love for com- for justice and mercy. And I guess that's what I'm hoping for. Well, and I, when I was reading uh, something, and I can't remember now, I maybe misspoke earlier, if it was ex- ex-evangelicals or the new evangelicals, mm-hmm. but either one, it's this uh, kind of deconstructed um, Christian faith that's still Christian, but it's kind of separated from you know the the contemporary expression of evangelicalism maybe that's right it's hard to describe yeah but 
they were there and they were blown away by the authenticity. Yeah. I'm hearing um, the, um, the number, the, the, um, the way that uh, queer folk were being affirmed. Let's see. Maybe it's and being, good. being welcomed and being part of it without this, like, got to pray the gay away. None of that. Yeah. Nice. And okay. so it seems as if, you know, if, if it takes, yeah, I guess, uh, it was, I think it was the president who of the college who talked about, well, revivals are known in their fruit. That's right. You know, what, what, what remains after the emotional aspect is, is, is done. Yeah. And I think that's key, but I also think the hesitancy, the reticence is makes sense. I sent you a poem yeah, by a, by a poet by the name of uh, Jessica Ice. Yep. And she wrote about her fear of these things. Right. Because of her experience having been on the receiving end of some of the trauma that, right. that, that gets imposed on people who are a little bit different. Yep. And so, um, so she concludes her poem with this, this, this stanza that says, so forgive me now amidst all the hype, the national swirl of emotion. If I hear revival, a move of God's spirit, and I do not rejoice, but cringe. Yeah. And so I think that's also the other side of it is to like hold our breath a little bit. Yeah. I think yeah. the last major one I remember happening was that one, wasn't it in and around Toronto near like the airport or something? And that was that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Todd, and Todd that Bentley was, or whatever was his name. And that was one of those groups that in their, in their after events mm-hmm. actually became part of the new apostolic uh, revival. That's movement. right. Mm-hmm. And so they're all part of that insurrectionist group. That's right. So uh, just, I, to me, a... it's like, I want to see where, who, and so far I'm hearing that they're being, being very protective and not letting anyone co-opt it, you know, for any brand or branch yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So, they're actually kind of watching the doors to make sure it's college <laughs> students coming in. Yeah. Yeah. Not, uh, you know, not there are, there are folks who do want to co-opt. Yeah. That. Not the Greg Locke fellas, not the, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I, yeah, I'm a wait and see approach. I, uh, I talked about this on Sunday because we were, it was the transfiguration Sunday, you know? And so in my sermon, there was this moment, you know, Peter, uh, had it just, we, you know, we sometimes knock poor Peter, but actually had it just right. His understanding of what was going on and his, you know, then, uh, wanted to build a booth. The idea being, you know, connecting it to the festival booths where we sit in God's presence and we wait and we hear and we honor, um, what God has done for us in the past and wait to hear. And then lo and behold, God speaks, right. As you would expect. And it's like, now go follow this, my son down into the Valley to the cross, pouring out, you know, love and, so that's what I talked about. You know, like the revivals are important because these moments get us ready for something that comes next. But it oh, kind of yeah. depends on what comes next, you know, what we do with what comes next. So, yeah. Those are my thoughts on revival. So we'll have to see. I'm, Stay I'm tuned. cautiously excited. <laughs> and, I, and I think one of the earlier points, and we were, we were trying to remember words before we started recording. <laughs> yeah. And the, the after effect of, of uh, significant revivals in the United States have led to, I would hope, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm misreading the history, yeah. to some very positive 
social yeah. outcomes. Yes. Um, you know, maybe there were some other parts that we missed uh, because sure. we tend to miss um, <laughs> our story almost intentionally sometimes. Oh yeah. But but the the after effect of you know the the second great awakening included women's suffrage. Yes, that's uh, right. Continuation of uh, the abolitionist movement. There it is. Um, and and maybe other things as well. And you know even even the the prohibition era of you know against alcohol. Yeah. The thing that drove it wasn't alcohol. No, it was, it was abusive men beating up their families and their, right. their wives it was abusive that was the problem and how alcohol in particular was preying on um the poorest it was killing them you know yeah because there and were so, no standards for alcohol so they were literally ingesting poison because it was what they could afford you know and so even if you're you know enjoy a brew and a whiskey once in a while like me um <laughs> yeah. there was something about the prohibition movement that mm-hmm. came out of that that was identifying significant social problems that needed to be that's addressed. Right. That's right. Yeah, so there was good intent. So. There was some good intentions there. So. <laughs> yep. All right. Any, any closing words? Let's see. Uh, boy, oh boy. What else to, to say uh, that we didn't leave all out there? I'm not sure. All right. I got, uh, I, you tapped me out, man. You know, I, 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 I think, I think that's, we've gone through our four quarters. We did it. We did yeah. it. So, so yeah, um, I don't know what else to address other than second uh, part of Drew Strait's interviews coming up next week or next episode. Maybe I shouldn't, just in case something just, happens. Just, just, just knock on wood. Yeah. Hey, we've been we've doing episode, weekly for a while. So. We're doing good, but you know. Uh, but uh, next episode, second half of Drew Strait's interview, we're building up some. Uh, we're working on our open and relational ort uh, process thoughts and theology interviews so we're excited a lot of stuff coming down yep 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 all right all right that's a wrap see you later see you later